Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 89, beginning in verse 14. The covenant gospel of Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the Rock, my Savior. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with a rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. Let's sing God's praises from hymn number 262. Our first scripture reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 19. Just one verse. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. As we come to the last couple segments in the Garden series, I think it's important to consider the historical context in which we find ourselves. I assume that all of us here come from the heritage of the Protestant Reformation. We are a Protestant church and uh, we certainly draw our roots from the Reformation of the 16th century. That is our background. And most of us would claim roots in Reformed theology or Covenant theology, however you want to use the phrases that have come to us historically. You know the theology of Martin Luther or John Calvin or Zwingli. And I want to point that out because there are many in the Christian community that may not like some of the things that I will say in this presentation, this sermon today, and in my next sermon, which will conclude the Garden series. Uh, but consider this. Of the main reformers, I mean, no matter what you think about these particular reformers, they really turned a world upside down in the last 500 years. They reshaped Europe with their theology and they played a huge role in shaping the America 
that we know today. But whatever you think of those particular reformers and what they did, what they accomplished in our civilization, not one of those early reformers ever wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Not one of them was willing to actually go through the book of Revelation and write a verse-by-verse commentary on what Revelation is all about. In fact, some of those early reformers expressed doubts as to whether Revelation should even be in our Bible. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, it's very famous that he rejected the book of James because James's theology did not match what Martin Luther presented in his theology, but Martin Luther also questioned the book of Revelation. We're going to look at a passage today that is in the book of Revelation that that would have given him probably a, a large part of his problems. Now, I say all that to say this. There are some out there from our heritage who, if they heard what I was going to say today, would actually stand up and say that my message is heresy. And I have no illusions about that fact. I have no illusions that someone hear what I have to say and claim that I am teaching a soul-damning error. But when I stand up here and do this, I want to I want to point out the context of the historical context of our traditional faith. The Protestant Reformation has not had a unified, comprehensive view of the book of Revelation in 500 years. And so I think it's a if you hear things that may sound strange today, if you know of others who may violently disagree with what I have to say today, at least consider that context. Because I think it's a little premature to use the word heresy, to use those kinds of extreme statements about things like eschatology, which we call the, the last study of last things, which we have in the book of Revelation, when our own tradition has not come to agreement about what that's all about, particularly the book of Revelation. And so that was really what motivated me to do this garden series because I think that if you put the book of Revelation in the big story of the garden, starting in Genesis, and we looked at how the garden story unfolds throughout all the Old Testament, and then we get to the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, I think we may have a chance to actually understand it properly. And maybe even understand it for, and and there are lots of people doing this kind of work, understand it properly for the first time in at least 500 years. So I give that as a context for what we're going to be talking about today in the book of Revelation. Let's go to our text now. Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 8, as we continue to pick up in our garden series here. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David 
and the bright morning star. And so John takes all of these different things and he packs them in his concluding remarks about the revelation and what he saw. We begin this morning with what seems like a strange detail. After John has shown this great vision, the revelation of the glory and power of Jesus Christ, he falls down and literally in Greek prostrates himself before the angel or the messenger that God had sent. And what does the angel say? Don't do it. Don't do that. And actually, this is the second time that this has happened in the latter parts of Revelation. Go back to Revelation chapter 19 and you'll see it actually happens earlier almost word for word. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so this happened twice. John saw something, he understood its meaning, and he fell flat on his face to worship the angel. Now, most of the commentaries that I've read on these two passages suggest that John had lapsed into an act of idolatry. Really, that's what the angel is responding to. I used to believe that, and I I actually think there may be some bit of that involved because we do see this pattern throughout the history of the Bible. We see God's people seeing something very, very bright, something that was a symbol of something else that was very glorious, very uh, holy, and you see people going down and worshiping that thing rather than the God who sent it as a messenger. So we do have this example going on that pretty much what happens is people begin to worship the messenger or they begin to worship the message rather than God himself who gave those things. So I think there is some bit of truth to that, but the more I thought about this particular detail and and the context and what the angel actually says, the more I doubt that that's the main issue in this text. Think about the stories in the Old Testament. Well, first of all, does it seem strange to you to think that the inspired apostle would engage in an act of idolatry immediately? It's a little strange. I I wouldn't say it's impossible because we've seen great men of God in the Old Testament all through our scriptures who have made errors and actually committed sins. And the scripture is very clear about that. But we have here the example of John seeing this vision engages in an immediate act of idolatry. So first of all, I think it's a little strange to think that way first and foremost. But if that was the case, I would suspect that the angel would have quoted the first two of the Ten Commandments to John and warned him of his idolatry. Notice the angel doesn't warn him of idolatry explicitly. And that's really what Jesus did. Remember what Jesus did in the temptation? When Satan came to him and said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and prostrate, worship me. Jesus says, Get thee from me, Satan. It is written, You shall worship no other gods. But the angel doesn't tell John that, so I don't think that that's really what's going on here. And now think about all of the examples in the Old Testament about angels. What happens when angels show up to people in the Old Testament? People fall on their faces and prostrate themselves before the angel. This is actually normal. When the angel shows up to Joshua, Joshua falls on his face and he worships the angel. And actually the worship there is simply to revere, to respect as a superior. When Abraham had three visitors come, he bows down low to them to worship them or revere them. When Lot sees the angels 
He worships them or reveres them. Uh, you even have this going on between individuals who recognize who is superior. So the idea of bowing down to respect someone as a superior is actually very common, and I think that's actually what's going on. John is bowing himself to, to recognize this angel as his superior. And so, actually, there's an interesting thing about this because we know it's not wrong because Jesus promises that he's going to make the Jews bow down to the Christians. Go back to Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 3. This is one of those very interesting passages that helps us understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. Remember, the conflict in Revelation is between who is really the true people of God. Is it the church? Or is it the Judaizers? Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. In the Greek, to fall down at their feet is prostrate themselves. The same Greek word that we see with John doing here to the angels. So, um, the idea of prostrating yourself or falling down to revere someone as a superior is actually normal in the Bible, and I think that's really what John is doing. But what does the uh, angel say to John? Do not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So what the angel is actually saying is it is no longer appropriate for John to recognize the angel as his superior. What was normal in the old world, remember we talked about this being a new heaven and a new earth, what was normal in the old world is no longer appropriate. That's really the way the old covenant world worked. Go back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. The old covenant was administered by angels. And the angels were the ones who represented God and carried God's message. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And they understood this, this relationship to the angels as God's messengers. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so that's really what the angel is referring to. Because of the reign of Christ, because of this perfected salvation now, John had been raised with Christ and seated in glory with the angels and all of God's people with Christ. And so now is inappropriate in this new world that John spoke of, in this new world that the writer of Hebrews was talking about, it was inappropriate for them to recognize, for anyone to recognize the angel as the superior mediator of our covenant to God. That would actually be a reversion back to the old covenant manner of living. 
And now, because of Christ's reign, because of Christ's resurrection and seating God's people in the heavenlies, we are seated with the angels. And Paul talked about this. Paul talked about the destiny of believers to judge angels. And I believe that this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story. Because if you look at the, if you look at the creation account at the very beginning, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden with everything under their feet and they were called to judge the Satan serpent. They were not to submit themselves to the serpent by God's creation. And now you have this, this completed redemption in which the raising of, of man out of his fallen state, now he was seated in the heavenlies by faith in Christ and he is to judge angels. So really what this is all about is this is all about a new world. And John is having difficulty living in it because he's used to the old world. He reverts back to the old practice. Even though he saw this great vision of what, what it all meant, he really was challenged to understand what the restoration of the original order was all about. So let's continue in verse 10 of Revelation 22. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament prophetic books, you know that John is quoting from somebody here almost verbatim. John's not making anything up new here. This comes from the very end of the book of Daniel. So let's go back to Daniel. Let's see what Daniel has to say about this because there's an interesting contrast between Daniel 12, the last chapter of Daniel, and the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Verse 7 of Daniel chapter 12. The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. So you have this contrast between the last chapter of Daniel and the last chapter of Revelation. You have Daniel who's told that it, his prophecy was for a time in the end that was not yet that was going to be sealed up this prophecy for that period of time when that end came. And it tells us when the end was, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. Of course, the holy people in, this, in Daniel's day is his people, the Jews. They were the holy people. And now we have John being told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. And he goes on to use the same the judgment is sealed language. Let him who is wicked continue to do wicked. Let him who is righteous continue to be righteous. The judgment was sealed. Now I want to point out something about the time frame of Daniel. Uh, we know that Daniel was written about 500 years before Christ. And so the way the biblical prophecy works, that 500 years is a long time. And now, and, and Daniel is told that the end would be when his, when his book would be un sealed or fulfilled. 
And now we have the book of Revelation and John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Now, if we have a measuring rod here of 500 years in biblical prophecy is a long time, what would we think about the fulfillment of John's prophecy if he says the time is near and he's told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy? Will that extend 2,000 years out in the future? And if we're letting, letting the way the biblical prophecy works explain to us what prophetic time, how prophetic time works, it doesn't work. We're already 2,000 years past the time, almost 2,000 years past the time when John wrote this prophecy. And yet, when he wrote it, he said, the time is near. And so what we're seeing here is the unsealing of Daniel's prophecy because John is living at that end. And the time was near because the power of the holy people was going to be broken very soon. And if we look at history, we see what happened with the Romans and the Jewish war and the ending of the breaking of the holy people, the Jews, by the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, that completely revealed the new covenant world of which we've been studying. The holy city, the beautiful jewel city that God had been working on since the time of the garden. So keep in mind those time texts. Keep in mind the immediacy sense that John is talking about because those are very important. Because prophets had to speak the truth. And all of prophecy has to be true. So if John is mistaken about when these things would be fulfilled, then he is also mistaken as God's prophet. Verse 12, now we have another witness. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Notice the language of God and Jesus Christ rewarding His people according to what they had done. That's one of those problems that Luther had because he had this idea that you were that salvation was entirely of God and that it was actually very true in the way Luther presented that. But he could not reconcile this language of rewarding according to works. And it's kind of an interesting thing because really that's the whole story of the Bible. How is Adam and Eve treated in the garden? How were they judged in the Garden of Eden? From the very beginning, they were judged according to their works. And we sang Psalm 18, which talks about judgment according to works. And actually it's interesting because Luther placed so much emphasis on Paul, tried to develop his entire theology with a touchstone from Paul and Paul's writings. But Paul also talked about a judgment according to works. And so these things were very difficult for, for our heritage to accept, and they still are to a great degree. But this idea of, bringing, of Christ coming soon and Christ coming with his reward with him to give everyone according to what he has done is nothing new with John. Go back to Matthew chapter 16 because I believe that Jesus was the first to teach this in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Sound familiar? Same, virtually the same language that John's talking about. And now let's put this into historical context. John's now writing 
a few decades after Jesus gave this teaching in his ministry. And church history tells us that all of the disciples besides John at this time in the area of the mid-60s A.D. had been killed already. And John was the only one left. And so John understood that what Jesus had talked about in his ministry had to come to pass and that the judgment would be something that he would experience because he was one of the very last left of the original disciples who heard Jesus preach. So according to the Lord's own word, John understood that the coming of Christ was very, very near in his day. Now notice the multiple testimonies that John used to confirm the immediacy of the coming of Christ. Verse 6 of Revelation 22. The angel says it is near. Think of yourself in John's shoes here. He's got a legal document. This is a, a document that lays before the Jews their lawsuit that they had committed idolatry, that they had committed adultery against God because of their relationship to the other nations and their rejection of the Messiah. We have a lawsuit here. Verse 6, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord God, the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then we have Jesus' testimony in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. So John writes of two witnesses to establish the nearness of the coming of Christ in his day during the first century. Now next, John references the tree of life. Verse 14. And here's the connection all the way back to the Genesis story. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may go through the gates into the city. This is the seventh beatitude of the book of Revelation. Really, this is the greatest beatitude because there is no greater blessing than to have access to the tree of life. This is what the whole story of the Bible was all about. Access to the tree of life lost, being cast out of the garden, the story of the tree of life all the way through the Old Testament in various pictures and shadows and types. And now we have, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now not only is this a judgment of God according to works, but John says that they are blessed who wash their robes. I find it interesting that God does not say through John that God would wash their robes, but the blessing is upon those who wash their robes. So once again, we see how this idea of access to the tree of life is not completely apart from human effort. There is this effort that's involved that's necessary for salvation. Of course, we know it is all from God because it is His Spirit that that works through us to bring about the energy and the ability to accept the gospel and to receive the gospel and to be converted to this new covenant gospel that John's talking about. But this is a difficult thing from our heritage because in our heritage it's not generally accepted that salvation is involved in anything that man does. That's kind of looked down upon. But it's a difficult teaching. Outside, verse 15, outside are the dogs those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Notice that that is present. That is a present tense in the Greek. John's not talking about something that's future, something that we expect down the road at the end of the world. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so we have the vision of the city, 
And those who are in the city have access to the tree of life and the river of the water of life. And then outside are the dogs. And actually this, this word dogs here is a pretty blatant statement because if you go back in the Old Testament, how they used the word dogs, what the imagery of dogs was, in Deuteronomy, dogs are used of homosexuals and male prostitutes. And, and there are other ways that the word dogs is used in, involving Gentiles. And of course, the Jews looked at the Gentiles as very dirty or unclean people. And so now, what you have is John's redefining who the dogs are and who are the citizens of the holy city. And it's interesting because in Eastern culture today, it's still like this. Places like Iraq, they do not think of dogs as man's best friend, as we Americans do. Um, this was a, I read about a story about how the Americans were using search dogs to go search out for, for ammunition dumps and for explosives. And they were using these search dogs. They had no clue. They were leading these dogs into the Iraqis' houses and the, the dogs were sniffing over all their stuff. And the Iraqis were just going nuts because it was total humiliation to allow a dog into the house. It was total humiliation to the Iraqis because they considered dogs as unclean, as something that is disgusting, a disgusting animal. So it's just a matter of this culture difference. And we have to understand these culture differences to really understand what John is getting at. And it's interesting when you see those culture differences still show themselves in different cultures from Western American culture to the Near East, Near East culture. The full list that John offers is a description of those who find themselves outside. And you know what? This description fits with every time that Israel became apostate in the Old Testament. Every time that Israel corrupted themselves with idolatry, with harlotry, with the foreign god, where did they find themselves? The outside. They were kicked out of the land because the land was really the picture of the garden. And so every time you see Israel being kicked out of the land of Israel, the promised land, you will find that they had engaged in these kinds of practices. Sexual debauchery, magical arts, murder, idolatry, harlotry, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That was a big thing with the prophets. They were always condemning the falsehood that the, that the Jews practiced in their debauchery. So this is really nothing new here. This is really just a, a continuation of the story of God's garden. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. In Greek there, the you is plural, as in you all. One message for you all, the churches, all believers. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus identifies himself as both the root and the offspring, the source and the end of David. Remember, David is the great king of Israel. He is the source of David's royal line and he is the end of David's royal line. And like so many other things, these details draw significance from very deep in the Old Testament. Jesus' claim sets Jesus apart as the fulfillment of Balaam's oracle. That's where John's getting this imagery and how Jesus is communicating and it's connecting back to Balaam's oracle. Numbers chapter 24. Because Balaam of Peor gave a prophecy. Numbers chapter 24. And this is the prophecy that Jesus fulfills, obviously. And I'd like you to look at how the prophet speaks of timing in this one as well, because there's a, a very clear indicator for timing of fulfillment. 
that is part of the prophecy. Numbers chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. Then he, that is Balaam, uttered this oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Notice how Balaam, the seer, prophesies in terms of a star and a scepter. And that's the star and the scepter that John references here in verse 16. Who was the one who crushed Moab and conquered Edom in the Old Testament? It was David. But ultimately we are told Jesus is that star and Jesus is a source and destination of that scepter that kind of rules out an earthly kingdom with a throne from Jerusalem. The throne in Jerusalem is sourced from Jesus Christ. And the throne in Jerusalem in the history of Israel has its end in the throne, the perfect throne of God of which Jesus is ascended. Now all these details of the last chapter of Revelation are packed with rich meaning and amazing detail drawn from the scriptures before. But it's very easy to get caught up in the individual details and miss something very amazing about this. I believe that John is doing something very special. We modern Christians miss it easily because we don't understand the central purpose of the coming of Christ, first of all. We think of the coming of Christ as being the end of the world, the end of the physical universe, the stuff where the universe comes apart. But actually, it's the end of a covenant world. And so we don't understand what the coming of Christ is all about, and we don't understand why it was necessary for the coming of Christ to come to bring salvation. And if we read our Bibles a little better, I think we would see how the coming in judgment, the coming in salvation works. For example, Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. A very important detail for any study of the coming of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 24 you'll notice that the coming of Christ is all about salvation. It's all about salvation, the forgiveness of sins. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did He enter heaven to offer Himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not His own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Talk about the crucifixion. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. The second coming is not about the end of the world. The second coming is about the bringing of salvation to God's people. And that's really the only place in the New Testament that the word second is used in relation to the coming. And so because we don't understand what what this coming is all about, we don't understand what John is doing here 
at the end of the book of Revelation. And there is something really neat going on at the end of of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, because you will find that there are three witnesses that John lines up in this last chapter of Revelation. Verse 6 is the angel's witness. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the prophets, spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Witness number one. Then you have John's witness. Verse 8. I, John, read that like a legal document. This is an affidavit. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Two witnesses. And then we have Jesus Christ himself, a witness, in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The third witness. What are they witnessing to? The completion of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And those three witnesses match the three witnesses back in the garden which condemned Adam and Eve. Because what happened in the garden when God came in judgment? He asked the first witness, Adam, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? And he said yes. Witness number one, Eve, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? Witness number two. And God himself was witness number three that they had broken covenant. And that is where the curse came from. And so you have the three witnesses of the curse of the condemnation of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And you have the three witnesses of the accomplished redemption of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself being one of those witnesses in Revelation chapter 22. And so we have this end, this final redemption, this restoration of all things in Revelation 22. And it's a restoration that involves covenant relationship with God. God's people who lost covenant relationship with God in Genesis chapter 3 are now restored to perfect covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ and His work of redemption. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and what He has done. What John is doing here with the three witnesses is extremely significant and it has weighty, weighty implications. There are a lot of Christians out there who who say specifically that they do not believe that they have been completely redeemed yet. There are people that look for other things to take place before the redemption of Jesus Christ is done. Something to happen in the future. Anyone who states that is making these witnesses into false witnesses. It is extremely significant to understand what these witnesses are about and why they are presented here as witnesses. They are true witnesses. And so we can accept and believe that we have been redeemed from the curse and that Christ has defeated death for us and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our ascension with him into the heavenly realm that we have been redeemed. All those who live in Christ live in God's garden where there are blessings forevermore. There is the access to the tree of life. May we believe and do the works of the book of prophecy. Amen. Let's pray.